When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Alton, Illinois is known as one of the most haunted small towns in America for a reason. It has more than its share of haunted houses. There are public places, private residences, and lost locations that were destroyed by the ravages of time are by what is often called progress. But there are others that remain in all their terrifying glory. In this episode, we're going to take a look at haunted houses in Alton. There's no way that we could recall every haunted house in the city. I've heard of literally scores of homes that would be worthy of mention here. But often their stories refer to isolated incidents or one-time occurrences of supernatural activity. Doors open and close, footsteps are heard on the stairs, lights are turned on and off. All of the trappings of a good ghost story, with only one thing missing. The story. So for this episode, we'll be visiting two very different haunted houses in Alton. One is a house that probably every listener will be familiar with. In fact, I'd say that it's probably the most famous haunted house in the region. The second house, while possibly almost as haunted, is a place that, well... I could just about guarantee you've never heard of before. So turn down the lights and gather around the radio, but there's no need to lock the door. Anything that might scare you is probably already in the house. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our first season explores the hauntings of Alton, Illinois, one of the most haunted small towns in America. The Filey House on State Street in Alton is not a place that sends a jolt of terror through the heart of even those who claim to be experts in the local hauntings, but it should. The reason it doesn't is because this is a house about which the ghost stories have never been made public before, until now. 
The story of the Filey House is a story of death and tragedy from the days when Alton was one of the busiest ports in the Mississippi River. The riverboats brought hundreds of people to the Alton docks each day, many of them criminals, and that turned the bustling town into a dangerous place. The story began in the early morning hours of Halloween, 1868, not at the Filey House, but at the First National Bank, just steps away from the Mississippi River in downtown Alton. At about 4 a.m., several people were startled by the cries of murder and gunshots in downtown Alton. Those who looked out their windows saw a struggle going on between several men at the side door of the bank. Concerned citizens rushed to the scene and spotted three men fleeing toward the river. They also found a longtime night watchman named M.H. Filey lying on the street. He was near death. A single bullet had struck him in the heart. It was later discovered that burglars had forced open the side door of the bank, along with the iron doors of the vault, but had been unable to open the safe. It was presumed that Filey, while walking his downtown beat, had noticed something peculiar going on at the bank. He'd gone around the side of the building, hoping to surprise them, but one of the robbers spotted him, rushed outside, and attacked him. Filey managed to overpower the robber and force him to the ground, but the sounds of the struggle brought the other thieves outside. Several shots were fired, one of which hit Filey in the chest, and the robbers fled in different directions. One of them was tracked quite a distance up Short Street, following pools of blood, which suggested he'd been wounded, and another left an overcoat behind at the scene, but it held no clue as to the identity of the owner. Filey, who never had the chance to remove his pistol from its holster, lived only eight minutes after assistance came and was never able to tell anyone exactly what had happened. His body was taken to the Franklin House, just two doors north of the bank, where a post-mortem examination showed that death had occurred from a bullet passing through his heart. He'd also been beaten in the head by some sort of metal bar, likely in the initial struggle. A coroner's jury later stated that his death had been caused by a person, or persons, unknown. And they remain unknown to this day because Officer Filey's murder was never solved. Filey's funeral was held on November 2nd, his body was laid out at his home on State Street, and he was honored by the Odd Fellows, an organization of which he'd long been a member. The services were attended by the mayor and the city council and was, in 1868, the largest funeral ever held in the city of Alton. But of course, that was not the end of the story. Filey's killers were still on the loose. Every effort was being made to find them, but so far no clues had been discovered. It was learned that a boat had been stolen from some fishermen on the riverbank, and the police assumed that was how the robbers had escaped. Besides the overcoat that had been dropped in the street, two other coats were found along the river, together with a large carpet bag that contained a set of burglary tools. The bandits had not been able to break into the bank's safe, but they'd managed to clean out the cash drawers of all of the coins that were on hand. A thousand dollar reward was offered for the capture of the killers, an astronomical sum at the time, but it was never claimed. Years passed, and the men who killed M.H. Filey were never found. But the same could not be said of the loot they made off with from the bank. In 1903, 35 years after the robbery, the Bluff Line Railroad was putting in foundations for the rail lines that were to run alongside the Mississippi. An upper Alton man named George Finkenkiller uncovered a pile of coins and the rotting remains of an old bag. The coins were mostly three cent pieces, dated 1865, the same coins reported missing after the 1868 robbery at the First National Bank. The money from the robbery had been found, even if the men who had stolen it had not. Time passed and downtown Alton changed. By the early 1900s, Alton was no longer a thriving river port. 
Businesses moved and changed. The First National Bank, which was located at the corner of State and Broadway, then called Short Street, was bought out by the Alton National Bank and located to a new building a block away at 3rd and State Streets. The First National Bank is now the site to Morrison's Irish Pub. The Filey House, though, hasn't changed much. It's still located up the hill on State Street, just as it had been when it was built by a riverboat pilot in the 1830s. It's a large house with three floors and a basement, befitting the status of the man who built it. M.H. Filey's widow Martha moved out of the house that she'd shared with her husband in 1888. She passed away herself in 1913 after raising her children alone. The house went through a series of owners through the 20th century leading up to the present day, but at least one of the owners of the past has never left the place, M.H. Filey the night watchman whose life was cut short in the robbery on Halloween in 1868. The haunting of the Filey house has been known for many years, even decades, but it simply has not been talked about much. If not for the accounts of a recent occupant who revealed the stories to my friend David Weishard, we likely would not know about them at all. The resident of the house, who we'll just call Jess, first realized that something out of the ordinary in the house was going on when her father reported hearing what sounded like men struggling and fighting downstairs one night. When he investigated, of course, he found nothing out of the ordinary. The family would know nothing about the story of Officer Filey or how he died until many years later. One of Jess's earliest supernatural memories in the house occurred when she was just four years old. She awakened one night by the sound of two men yelling in her room. She was terrified and vividly recalled running to the bedroom door and screaming for help. Her stepmother later reported seeing a man in the same bedroom who was wearing clothing from the middle 19th century. It was the same time period that M.H. Filey lived in the house, but since no photographs exist of the murdered officer, we can't be sure it was his spirit, but it certainly seemed possible. Activity in the house seemed to increase after Jess's father found a hollow wall in the basement where the old summer kitchen used to be. He tore down the wall and expanded the basement, and suddenly, strange things began to happen, according to Jess, on a daily basis. Doors banged open and closed, once so hard that the door came off its hinges. Lights turned on and off. Footsteps were heard pounding up and down the stairs. Jess's father was even shoved down the stairs on one occasion. All of this went on for some time, and this activity included the incident where the family heard the sounds of men fighting in the kitchen. Jess's father, who was upstairs at the time, was so startled that he grabbed his gun and went down to see what was happening. The first floor of the house was quiet and dark. No one was there and nothing was out of place. There was no explanation for what they had heard, other than to consider the idea that it was ghosts. If you live anywhere in the region, from Alton to St. Louis, and you think of a haunted house, there is one house that comes almost immediately to mind. And these days, you don't even have to live in the region to have heard of the place. You've seen it on websites and on television shows, and it seems that nearly every ghost enthusiast alive has heard of the McPike Mansion, which is located on Albee Street in Alton. The stories are everywhere, and many who are listening to this are wondering if all of these stories can possibly be true. Can this old house really be as haunted as the owners and so many ghost hunters claim? I can answer those questions quite simply with one word. Yes. 
The McPike Mansion, originally known as Mount Lookout, was designed by architect Lucas Feifenberger and was built for Henry Guest McPike in 1869. Feifenberger was the leading regional architect of the day. He designed a number of famous buildings in the area, including several churches, two schools, the design for which won an award at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, and the Haskell Home and Playhouse on Henry Street. Lucy Haskell, for whom the Playhouse was built, was given the Playhouse as a birthday present by her grandfather, John Hayner. He had asked Feifenberger to design it to be the exact replica of the family's home. After Lucy's death from diphtheria, her ghost began to be reported around the Haskell family plot at the Alton City Cemetery. But that's another ghost story altogether. Henry McPike was one of the leading citizens of Alton in the mid-19th century. His family had immigrated to America from Scotland and included a number of patriots who fought in the American Revolution. One of them, Captain James McPike, was with Washington at Valley Forge, and he came west to Kentucky after the war. He brought with him his sons, John and Richard, and Henry was the son of John McPike and first came to Alton as a young man in 1847. He worked hard and began to make a name for himself in the business and political communities of Alton. He invested in real estate and was involved in a number of different enterprises, including insurance and box manufacturing, and also became president of the oldest horticultural society in Illinois. McPike became involved in the abolitionist movement in Alton. He was also, probably, because we'll never know for sure thanks to the fact that no records were being kept, part of the Underground Railroad in the city, helping slaves escape from the South. His father had been the editor of a Whig newspaper. The Whigs later became the Republican Party in the time of Abraham Lincoln, and he was an early advocate of the abolition of slavery. Henry followed in his father's footsteps. He was one of the organizers of the Lincoln-Douglas debate in Alton in 1858, and as a friend of Lincoln, had a seat on the platform during the debate. During the Civil War, he acted as a deputy provost marshal of the district and was placed in a management position in the War Department. When the war ended, he served as a representative for Alton in many conventions, held a seat on the city council, and served as mayor of Alton in 1887 and in 1891. What's the point of all this? Well, to make it so that you understand, there's no question that Henry McPike was one of the most prominent Alton citizens of his day, and his house was constructed to fit that status. Mount Lookout was a 15-acre country estate, and the house at its center was the most elaborate in the area at the time. The Italianate Victorian contained 16 rooms and had a vaulted wine cellar. Thanks to McPike's interest in horticulture, he had the estate planted with rare trees and shrubs, a wide variety of flowers, and extensive vineyards. Henry cultivated what became known as the McPike Grape, which became known across the country for its fine wine. It won gold medals in every competition in which it was entered. Mount Lookout became known as one of the most beautiful estates in the region. But time marched on. The McPike family lived at the estate for some time after the death of Henry McPike, but records are unclear about some of the dates. Some accounts say they stayed in the house until 1936, but other records say that the house was owned by Paul Lockinger, who bought the house in 1925 and lived there for two decades until his death in 1945. It seems that it became a rooming house, or an apartment building, after his death. A number of people have told stories about living in one apartment or another in the mansion during the 1950s. Several of them have spoken about experiences with ghosts in the house long before the place earned its reputation that it has today for being haunted. 
At some point, the house was abandoned for the first time. The land was eventually sold and plans were made to develop the remaining four acres of the property by tearing down the house and building a shopping center. When the owner ran into zoning problems, the development plans were scrapped and the property was abandoned again and ransacked by vandals and thieves. Word spread that anyone who wanted to take something from the house could easily walk out with it and looters descended on the place. They stole everything in the house that was not nailed down and many things that were from marble fireplace mantles to staircase banisters, even the toilets. Chandeliers and light fixtures were torn out. The massive interior doors that were custom made for the house's 12 foot ceilings disappeared. Radiators were removed and the copper pipes were quickly ripped out. Perhaps worse than the scavengers were the vandals that followed in their wake. Soon spray paint covered the walls, windows were broken and what had not been stolen was almost completely destroyed. It was destruction for the sheer thrill of it the worst kind of crime to commit with an old house. The other enemy of the McPike Mansion was time itself. In the early 1980s, the gutters failed and water began seeping into the house. As the roof deteriorated, it also began to leak, wreaking such havoc that it became unsafe to walk on the upper floors. With all of the window glass broken out, the interior was left to the elements and the mansion's days seemed to be numbered. In 1990, though, the house was purchased by a St. Louis contractor who had become fascinated with the house. He believed that he could repair the damage the time and vandals had done and immediately began work on the place. A stickler for detail, he had extensive plans for the house and believed it would take him two years to complete all the work. He began making replacement eaves with old lumber, which would match the era of the house, planned to floor the solarium with white marble, rebuild the carriage house, and more. It looked as though the McPike Mansion would be saved after all. In a 1991 newspaper interview, the contractor told a reporter that, quote, My mother always laughs when I start one of my restoration projects and tells me that I'll never get it done, unquote. Well, you guessed it. Mom was right. In 1994, the house was on the market again. Very few of the grand restoration projects had been started, let alone completed. Later that same year, the house got new owners, who still own it today. As a lark, Sharon and George Lucky bid on the house at auction and were very surprised when they won. They had dreamed of buying an old house, fixing it up, and turning it into a bed and breakfast. The McPike Mansion seemed like a great deal. A few months later, when the brick ranch house next door to the mansion came up for sale, the Luckys sold their home in Godfrey and moved to Albee Street so that they could be closer to the mansion. Sharon is the first one to admit they had no idea what they were getting themselves into. The purchase of the mansion was just the first step in what would become an uphill battle for them. They soon became disappointed to learn that, contrary to the assurances they had received on the day of the auction, no grant money was available from the house from any federal, state, or local agencies. They were on their own. Worse, a short time later, the house was added to a list of the most endangered historic sites in Illinois, which is not a list that anyone wants to have a building on. The only good news was that the Lefkies did receive a couple of small grants that paid for architectural reports to tell them what could be done to save the house. Not a lot of help, and that was all they got. But they had not given up the fight, and they still haven't. Despite continued decay from the elements, battles with the city, break-ins by trespassers, and more, they've repainted, rebuilt, re-roofed, and made a valiant effort to continue the restoration of the house. The McPike Mansion remains a fascinating part of Alton and a chilling reminder that the past is, well, never really past.
How did the McPike Mansion earn its place as the most haunted house in Alton? Well, that's a great question, and one that I've been asked approximately 1,000 times over the years. The thing is, nobody knows. There are all kinds of rumors and tall tales about the house. Murders, suicides, illicit love affairs, you name it. None of them are true. Yes, there have been deaths in the house. It's an old house and people have died there. But there have been no gruesome murders, no terrible events that would explain the strange stories that have circulated for so many years. So why so many ghost stories? And why so many first-hand accounts of supernatural happenings from people who have no reason to lie about them? Well, I think the McPike Mansion is simply haunted by the past. The events of yesterday have left an impression behind. The past documents, well, just decided they didn't want to leave. There's nothing violent or demonic about the house. It's simply haunted. There are no ghosts here seeking revenge or angry with the living or out to get anyone. But that doesn't mean that what happens here isn't often very unnerving. Sharon Ludke came to believe that the mansion was haunted almost from the beginning of her involvement with it. She says she encountered the ghost of Paul Lackinger about six weeks after she bought the place. Paul had owned the house during the early part of the 20th century and died there in 1945. He was preceded in death by his own son, and some stories say he lingers in the mansion as well. Paul died after years of heavy smoking, and it's not uncommon for visitors to the house to be overwhelmed by the smell of cigarette smoke, even though no one has been allowed to smoke in the house for decades. One night, a group of people who were in the house not only smelled the smoke, but actually saw a cloud of it appear in the area above their heads. Sharon first encountered Paul's ghost while she was out on the lawn watering some plants. She looked up and saw a man looking out from an upper window of the house. A chill came over her when the man vanished. Later, while researching the house, she obtained a photograph of Paul and realized he was the man she had seen. She believes that he loved the house and the son who died and perhaps also remains there so much he simply didn't want to leave. Another spirit that Sharon has encountered in the house is thought to be a domestic servant that Sharon initially dubbed Sarah without really knowing why. She was little more than a presence with an assumed name until a man came by the house one day and presented the Luckies with some books that he had stolen from the house nearly two decades before. One of the books had the name Sarah Wells written inside of it. Sarah still makes herself known in the mansion. Sharon has been touched, actually she was hugged, by the ghost and she and George have often smelled the strong odor of lilacs when the spirit is nearby. And Sharon and George have not been the only ones to experience the hauntings in the mansion. There have been literally scores of other people, including myself, who also have. There have been hundreds of paranormal investigations carried out at the house, along with live radio shows, tours, and casual visits by ordinary people who never expected to find anything out of the ordinary about the crumbling old house, but did. It's an eerie and mysterious place with more questions about it than answers, and yet it's a wonderful one all at the same time. It's a part of Alton's haunted history that we never want to lose, and if you've never been there, I encourage you to visit. Unless you're afraid of ghosts, that is. Twitter has 280 characters. Yeah, that was their first tweet. Was SVU's it? first tweet was, was in the criminal justice system, and they did the whole thing. <laughs> and at the end, it said, 
Done, done. Just like that. That was their first tweet. That was Perfect. classic. I didn't know that was their first. Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 12 of season one, which delves into the hauntings of Alton, Illinois. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, well, we uh, survived our, our Halloween episode. We did. We survived Halloween, I guess we should say, yeah. but we also survived our Halloween episode, which, um, you know, went a little different than what we normally do, So, but it was fun. And We, uh, we had a little bit no too much one, fun. No one complained. I don't think. Well, if they did, they didn't complain to us. True, and, and if they did, we don't care. No. But we had a great time. <laughs> yeah, and we are we are back at the Best Western Premiere, mm-hmm. uh, the official hotel, I guess official local hotel of American Hauntings. Yep. And location of the 2018 Haunted America Conference, which, as a reminder, by the time you hear that, we will have completed the entire website. We launched it. Uh, the week, uh, I believe, November 9th or 10th, launched the website, and uh, it is up and running with tickets going on sale January 8th. So we'll be doing a live recording from there. We'll be doing one from the Dead of Winter Festival, which is coming up at the Mineral Springs Hotel here in Alton on February 10th. Uh, so if you uh, enjoy the podcast and want to, well, I, 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 you probably will not get a perfect representation of how the podcast is done at those events. Uh, no. I imagine we will be a little bit more um, low-key, a little bit more uh, professional, professional perhaps, um, when we are doing it in front of an audience rather than the audience we normally have, which is like, you know, Leah or Cassidy or Lisa, Lisa or yeah. Lux, who doesn't complain at all. Yeah, it's one of those things where we, we probably, with a real audience, it might not be a perfect representation of the podcast right at least will be it'll be fun yeah I, th- be fun. I think that anybody that knows either of us as well um if you've ever <laughs> seen us execute anything it's just a bunch of like run around <laughs> well we're figuring out along the way you jump off a cliff you build a plane on the way down yes. and we just make it happen this one hour podcast usually takes about three hours to right. record so that gives you any idea of how things go yeah and um, i mean we've used yeah. a, 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 a guitar stand with rubber bands for a microphone yes, stand we, we do what we have to do to make that's it happen right. that's right uh come along because because and both of those both of those times that we'll be doing those recordings will be with some audience input. Mm-hmm. So if you like the podcast and you want to maybe be a, a part of it, uh, well, we might cut you out, but you never know. Yeah. Uh, you might yeah. end up in it, right? So uh, no, really, we do want to have some audience input and questions and that kind of thing. So it should be fun. Um, I think it'll be fun to do. Uh, fun to listen to, I hope. So anyway, absolutely, we'll see. We'll I did. See. I did the uh, the event at Edwardsville Library, and you know, I spoke for about twenty minutes, and then I answered questions for about forty minutes after that, right. and that was my favorite part. Right. Honestly, oh, yeah. To drive yeah. with the audience and yeah. just answer their questions, and make and, it make it part of the podcast. It'll be cool. So yeah, I mean, if you like the podcast, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to do the same thing that you always do. Uh, we we thank everybody for. We, we, thanks for listening. Thanks for all the downloads, and, and really thanks for the reviews. Yep. Uh, the more you can review us on iTunes, the, the easier it is for people who may not be as smart as you are because you're already yep. listening to the podcast. I haven't got there yet. There are people who have not gotten there yet, have not found it yet, and that makes it easier for them to find it. So um, do us that do us that small favor. Leave us a, leave us a, a review, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll greatly appreciate it. 
Absolutely. Well, we will not uh, hold you back any further. We'll just dive right into yeah, this. Yeah, let's get into this episode. Um, I do want to say one more thing, though. As we are recording at this hotel, and I've been listening to Troy do this monologue, in the background, we've had on the television a certain a TV show, I will not name, on a certain <laughs> channel about the paranormal, and it's, I, I don't like it. It's horrible. It's, it's bullshit. It's horrible. I'm watching it, and, and I want to remind people that you you don't get things on television or on radio that often if there's n- if nothing happens. Right. So so as you can appreciate these things for entertainment, just think that it's not necessarily an Real accurate life. representation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, just because you touched a haunted doll, right, doesn't mean you're legitimate. Nor does it make the doll actually haunted. And that's all I'm going to say about this particular show. Yep. And yep. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't y- worry about you it. You can figure so you're it out. Not missing anything. So anyway, hey, let's get to this episode. Yes. Um, all right. So, yes, I'm gonna say it is um, okay. Okay, yeah, I that's let's come, let's address this. that right now. No, 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 let's address this. We were just gonna cut this out, but I have referred to the uh, the officer who died, the night watchman who died in the bank robbery in 1868, as Filey, and I'm assuming I could not find anyone who'd give me a different pronunciation of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Philly just sounded funny. Yeah. So I went with Philly because okay. it, it sounded better. So All right. uh, I'm going to give you that disclaimer that it could possibly be incorrect. But um, if it is, send us an email, let us know. Um, mm-hmm. We're not going to go back and re-record the episode. But, but it'd be nice to we know. Would, I would like to we know. Want accurate if history. It's, if it's possible to know, I'd like to know. So. For sure. Well, so okay, so what is it about between like Jack the Ripper type stuff and then a couple stories you told me? What is it about everyone back in the day just yelling murder at the top of their lungs? Like, was that just how I you sounded the alarm? The, I think that was the best way to sound the alarm in in 1868 or at the time. I mean, it, it wasn't like the you know the burglar alarm wasn't going to go off because mm-hmm. there wasn't one. ADT um, wasn't getting yeah, notified. Yeah, right. There there was no burglar alarm that was going to go off and. I think that that was the way that you got people's attention, um, especially when there was a. I mean, no one knew he was being murdered. I'm sure they probably whoever saw this struggle taking place outside of the bank yeah. yelled murder because it, it looked like things were going pretty bad for the for the officer. Right. And so they yelled murder because it got attention, and it did. Um, at four o'clock, I mean, but that's interesting in itself because that tells you just how busy Alton was in the 1860s. Right. Because there were that many people out and around at 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, I'm sure there were a lot of guys who worked on the river on their way down to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, As it mentioned, some fishermen had their boats stolen. Yeah. So there were people out and around at 4 a.m., um, now, if you go down to downtown Alton at 4 a.m., you don't want to run into anybody, trust me. No. Um, just, you just I'm don't. sorry, officer. I'm out of yeah, here. You do, right, exactly. You do not. So back then, you know, I think it was a whole different story. And here you had a situation where, you know, it looked like things were going really bad. So that's what you yelled. You yelled right. murder. There were gunshots going off and, you know, which, again, the gunshots may not have been that uncommon. So by adding yelling murder into yeah. it you got the idea that it wasn't just somebody firing off a few shots for fun it was, yeah it was you know that came out of a saloon it was actually something bad happening right so. okay so i i had never heard of this story really before and i, I hadn't I, either man. and i'm curious what's okay is the is there a difference between a watchman and a beat cop like when yeah, we're talking you know, about what this guy was is he was the equivalent you know we did the in my favorite ghost stories episode yes. a few episodes back um, and we talked about August Mayford, who Mayford, was right. a merchant policeman, a, a night watchman, essentially. That's what he was. Um, he, he had been a retired police officer, which is... See, that's why this story never turned up anywhere, because 
The August Mayford story was a story of a murdered policeman. Even though he was no longer a policeman, he had been one. So it went into the police records. Right. Where this guy was a private security guard, essentially. I mean, uh, they just called him a night watchman. And uh, so I never ran across a so record. It's not like a capital yeah. murder or whatever. No, it wouldn't have been like a you know a, a, an officer of the law being gunned down. This was a night watchman, okay. security guard who was doing his duty. I mean, he died. I mean, he was, um, I believe, had been a firefighter at one time. Mm-hmm. He was an odd fellow. He was uh, well known, well liked, well respected. All of the newspapers kept reiterating that fact of how well known he was and how well respected he was. And so I think that this really made an impression on people when this happened. Yeah. Um, you know, Alton was in the 1860s and before was a it could be a pretty rough place. Any river town was. Right. And Alton was a was a big town um, for especially for the time period. Still in the 1860s, still maybe not the biggest town in Illinois anymore as it has been or it had been before that. But it was still a, a pretty thriving community on the river, and you had a lot of crime. You know, and so the merchants would, as they did with August Mayford, they put together their money into a pool and they would hire a night watchman. And I'm sure there were several of them, and he happened to be working on, on you know, that particular night, which would have been August thir- or October 30th that night into the early hours of Halloween. Right. And it leads me to believe that, you know, from the story you tell, that I guess movies do portray things somewhat accurate. Is it the the criminals they couldn't get the damn safe open mm-hmm. and it's you I know, don't think they had the right tools for that. they had a yeah. toolkit apparently yeah. but yeah. Uh, it's really really sad but you know what I get a little bit of justification out of it, it the fact that they were able to follow a pool of blood at least a little bit yeah. up the street yeah. that he, like yeah. he got one of them right you know right. He, he must have injured one of them his gun was never fired uh, but oh. you know yeah his gun was actually never fired it was still in his holster when he was found uh, but you know, somebody came at him. He was hit in the head with a steel bar. Chances are, he probably carried a knife or something. Yeah. Remember, this was the 1860s. This was a pretty rough and tumble town. I mean, this was still, you know, in those days, this was still kind of the Wild West. Yeah. I mean, you know, the 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 westward movement was really just getting started by this time. So when you when you talked about the Wild West in the 1850s and 60s, this was it. Mm-hmm. It was Illinois. And uh, this was still a pretty frontier area, and uh, he probably carried a knife, or if he didn't, um, he probably was hired on the fact that he was... Combat ready. He was tough. He had to be tough, because these guys, you know, back in those days, this was before there were a lot of organized police forces Mm -hmm. at that point in history. And most of the guys they hired to be policemen were one step away from being criminals themselves. I mean, a lot of uh, these guys were thugs, man. Yeah. And so this this guy probably was, I wouldn't say he was a thug, as well-respected and well-liked as he was by a lot of the political people and stuff in town. And he had to have known some people right. to probably get this job in the first place. Right. But I'm going to tell you, he had to have been tough. I mean, this was a former firefighter uh, who was probably a guy who knew how to handle himself. Yeah. I mean, he, he fought off before he got shot fought off three guys yeah so you know and wounded at least one of them pretty badly enough that they could follow a trail of blood well, I, feel, I feel like back in that day to be able to do anything the the line between you know kind of 
brutal and ruthless and you know dead had to be blurred a lot yeah, it's right you so. had to do what you had to do Absolutely. to survive in that Absolutely. kind of wild west environment right. you talked about and that plays right into the you know the traumatic history that we talk about all the time you know life was tough and you had to do what you had to do to survive right and that you know can end up getting stuck and, and replaying and replaying over and over again but yeah i had not i mean i, I honestly i wasn't familiar with the story i wasn't even familiar with the bank robbery mm-hmm. honestly um and like i said i didn't run across it it was I'd done a lot of research into the police department and I knew about the murders or, or police officers that had been killed in, in the line of duty, but I'd never run across this story. Uh, an old friend of mine, David Weishart, found this story and sent it to me. And I think he started digging into it because someone who lived in the house within the last decade or so came to him with stories. And he's like, well, that's, you know, I'm going to see what's going on. He, he does a lot of great research. and. He uh, started digging into this, and he sent me. I mean, the first message I got from him were all these newspaper stories, and I'm like, "Where? What in the world? Where did this come from?" And it was interesting enough when it was just a bank robbery, and then I got all the ghost stories that went with it to right. follow it up with. And um, I think that it's an interesting story, and I wanted to include it in this episode because we we were going to do the McPike Mansion, and everybody, I mean, it is the most famous haunted house, but. And there are lots of haunted houses in the community and around. I mean, you know it. I mean, you hear them all the time. Absolutely. You know, lots of people we talk about, oh, yeah, you know, my house is haunted. And, you know, they'll talk about the uh, the things that happen. And But the problem with so many of them is, is kind of what I said in the beginning. They have all of these great stories, but what's missing is the story. Yeah. I mean, there's no there's no history behind it. There's the origin. no exciting story behind it to make it a real story. But here we have one. You know, this we had this bank robbery. We had this guy who died tragically, uh, who lived in this house, and you know, maybe he's still around. You know, it might explain some of the activity that that goes on in the house that's been reported in the house, and uh, people who've lived there, you know, will maintain that you know this is really actively haunted, and um, it's it's just as haunted as a lot of these famous places. It's just nobody knows about it. You know, right? Well, I know that you do like really, really thorough research into a lot of these places. Do you think, and it, it pains me to say this as much, you know, skeptic as I am, do you think that there is history to some of these places that you and I have talked about where we say, like, we just don't know, you know, how this place could possibly Absolutely. be haunted? Do you think there's stuff that there's we just don't know? There's something we've missed. Yeah. yeah I mean, or, or, or it's not even so much that we missed it. It's just, it's, it's just not there. Right. It's not record there keeping was not Yeah, the there's same. just not, there's no record of it. There's no story behind it. There's no one even orally telling these stories. Yeah. And that's... To me, that's one of the most tragic thing about collecting ghost stories and, and stories of hauntings because a lot of people just don't think to make a record of it. Right. And I mean, for every for every story that that I'm able to tell or to write about and put in a book, there's 50 other stories that nobody will ever know. Yeah. Because they have been forgotten about over the years. And yeah. one of the great things in the last decade or so has been since so many newspapers have been on, been put online. archived and online. you know and and you can go online and find i mean back when i first started there was nothing like that if i wanted to go find something in a newspaper man i had to go down to the library look through all the microfilms and you don't even know what you're looking for a lot of times now you can actually go go through these archives and find some really great stories just browsing i mean i can yeah. lose myself for Days in one newspaper in one year or one decade, you could just go through and find story after story after story. I mean, mm-hmm. you put in some search term like, you know, haunted in between 1900 and 1910, 
and come back with you know thirty five thousand you know hits yeah and then you have to weed through it because half of them don't really mean that or right the bad thing is putting ghosts and then you end up with oh man you end up with everything yeah every church with it in the name and it's like how do I get that out of the search you know um, because that's not working but um, so I think over time more and more things are gonna pop up mm-hmm. there's a guy named Tim Prossel who um, he did a. He just put out a book, but he does some great recordings called Spectral Edition. Okay. And I, this is my plug for Tim. Um, but he just put out a book about it. If you if you have an interest in old stories like this, get a copy from Amazon. Uh, it's a neat book, and he's taken. He's that's what he's done. He's gone through decades of ghost stories and decades of old newspaper stories about ghosts and haunted places, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see what made it in the papers, but. I think that as time goes on, I think we'll find more and more of these locations. We'll find stories mm-hmm. that go with them. But I think as more and more time goes by, more and more are going to be lost as right. well. Right. So that's why I think it's so important to collect the stories when you can find them. And that's why this story about this house, um, now we've got it. Now it's part of Alton's Haunted History yeah. that we didn't know about. A month ago, even let alone ten years ago, right? Um, it's a story that is is old, but it's it's now it's brand new. And now um, that we have Twitter, everything's going to be documented forever. New. Yeah, exactly. I can so. I can kind of see that you know a lot of these stories um, going undocumented simply because probably the people that were really really close to them don't want to remember them. Well, that's I would true imagine. Too. And so like yeah. they don't want to tell anybody. Or don't or or it's not that they don't want to remember. It's just they don't they think nobody would believe them anyway. Well, yeah, there's a lot of that that goes on. I mean, because I mean, as we've talked about before, almost every ghost story that somebody wants to come and tell you starts with, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. I never believed in, I I don't believe in ghosts, but, or, you know, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but, you know, and so a lot of people don't tell the stories. And I'm the worst kind of person too, because I'm the first guy to be like, well, you have a ghost story. Oh my gosh, tell me. And they tell me, and I'm like, I don't, no, 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 hold on. Did you think about, (laughs) but I'm like, keep telling me, keep telling me. So I'm, you know, playing from both sides, but so I can understand that. Um, all right, so if, if you're ready, I'd like to move on. Yes, to... yes, we can talk about the meat pie grandchild. But first, let me start before you ask anything else. Let yep. me tell you why, why, even though a lot of the stories are crazy, a lot of the stories no. I don't believe, mm-hmm. a lot of the stories come from people who, you know, oh, I broke in there one time, and okay, good, great story, um, you know, and oh, I saw glowing red eyes, and you know, this kind of stuff, yeah. but. The reason that I think the McPike Mansion actually is haunted, and I see that um, based on personal experience, and that's not always the case. I mean, you know, I I tell people all the time, I tell ghost stories for a living, I mean, obviously, you know, and on a tour, I'll tell you about a hundred places that, you know, legend has it, or the stories say, or someone says, or, you know, this was their experience, but it's not always that I have a place where I've had a personal experience, and that is a place that I've had one. And um, this story dates back to, I think it's probably 15 years old now, but I was there one night um, and I had had a group of friends from all over. I don't know if it was a weekend after a conference. I, I don't think it was, but we might've had some kind of event. So I had a lot of people from all over who would come to visit. And I remember my friend Dave Goodwin was there from the Mineral Springs story, yeah, the, yeah. the cop story. Um, Renee was there from Pennsylvania, Renee yep. Cruz. And uh, we had, gathered a group of people and we were going to go down into the wine cellar in the basement 
And that's where a lot of activity has been over the years. Now, right. I tell you this story, it was 15 years ago, and I've been there lots of times since then, but I've never actually seen anything that I couldn't explain mm -hmm. since then. Okay, I've been there a lot since then, but not, this was the weird story. And so a group of us gathered in the wine cellar, we were gonna kind of, you know, hang out down there, set things up, see what happens. And uh, a friend of mine, his wife had come and she was very claustrophobic in the wine cellar. So she wanted to leave. So Renee said, you know, I'll, I'll take her outside because at the time, now when you go there, if you go in and you go to the wine cellar, you're actually coming through an outside door into the basement. Okay. Back then, you could still go through the actual house. Yeah. And so to get out of the house, you just went up the basement stairs to the first floor and out the front door. So Renee took her and they went outside, they went up the stairs, went outside, and we kind of hung around for a few minutes. Everybody was kind of setting things up, cameras and all that kind of stuff. And there's chairs in there. And so we were just kind of hanging around. Well, then we heard Renee come back. And you could hear you could hear everything upstairs. You could hear her walk across the floor of the of the main room into the, the entryway, the foyer, into the, the, the room through the house to the basement stairs. We heard her come down the stairs. We heard her come across the basement floor. And the wine cellar has this big massive metal door on it that, that drags across the stone when you open it. And the door swung open, dragging across the floor. Everybody heard it. We all turned around, waited for Renee to walk in. Nobody walked in. Mm. No one. So we waited a minute. Uh, well, and, you know, it's Renee. I'm going to just say that. So it could have been anything. She could have been, you know, lost in thought out in the basement. So uh, one of our friends stepped to the doorway to see what she was doing and turned around and said, there's nobody out here. Now we had, this is a group of like eight people. We had all clearly heard her coming down. Yeah. So within like 30, 45 seconds after they said there's nobody out here and we were kind of looking at each other like, well, you know, what the heck? And then we hear again, the same thing, footsteps upstairs, down the stairs, across the basement. And then Renee walks in the door this time. And we're like, did you just come in? And she goes, no, I've been outside talking. Why? And then, you know, we're like, okay, that was weird. Permission uh, to freak out. Yeah, so that was weird. And um, that was an experience. I, I've never been able to explain it. And it happened in front of, you know, me and probably eight or nine other people all in the same room. So it's one of those things that I've always believed was... I'm not, I'm not, I hate to use the word unexplainable, but I certainly can explain it. Not easily. Yeah. I mean, it was something that happened. It was very interactive with the group that was there, uh, which leads me to believe that there are, it's not just history haunting that house. I think there's actually something there, someone there. And, you know, maybe it is one of the past, you know, residents, occupants of the house who just hasn't left. I mean, I, it's certainly possible. I mean, especially when you look back at the history of this place and realize that, you know, when it was built, that family had to have loved this place. Yeah. I mean, it was 15 acres. Yeah. I mean, see, that's what a lot of people don't understand when you drive up Albee Street right uh -huh. now. All of a sudden, you're driving through this residential neighborhood of ranch houses, and all of a sudden, here's this massive Adams family-looking mansion yeah. on the side of the road, and people look at it, and they're like, what the heck? You know, how did this end up here? Right. You know, that was what was there. None of the rest of it was. I mean, 15 acres of land with this right in the middle, you have to try to go back to 1869 and picture this. Yeah. I mean, it was on the outskirts of town. I mean, it was outside of Alton. It was in the country. I mean, it was an actual estate. 
Yeah. I mean, with outbuildings and, you know, this mansion in the middle of it, these people, vineyards on the hill, you mm -hmm. know, people, they had to have loved this place. So, you know, maybe they just decided not to leave because, you know, I, like I said, I've heard, oh man, so many stories of, you know, oh, you know, it's cults and murders and, you know, none of that stuff happened. Yeah. You know, there's no record of any of that. I mean, plenty of people died there, but you could say that about every single old house in it's town. It's an old place, yeah, right? Yeah, that just happens. Everybody used to die at home, you know? Right. Okay, well, with that being said. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, yeah, so no, no, everything you say makes sense. And, you know, I remember the McPike Mansion from when I was much younger in Alton. And even if you go drive by now, you can see just the... All the it's almost like all the concrete around it you can tell like this has been renovated it's all different sure. you know that whole entire area it's very different than what it used to look like um, and the McPike mansion is always the example that I give when people say like okay well, we have a podcast what's your podcast about and I say you you know you, you live in Alton you drive by these places all the time and you really don't know the history behind them you just know that they are haunted McPike mansion is always the example I use it's always the example that resonates with people and they totally understand it uh, so that's the one that that I use and for people that are not so familiar with Alton, it looks, like you said, like the Adams Family. I like to think it looks like the stereotypical Scooby-Doo type house. Oh, sure. House. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful structure, and it's, what, 16 rooms in this place, um, which just, you know, blows my mind. Um, on advice of counsel, I am not allowed to talk about whether or not I have ever been inside, <laughs> but I know a lot about the building, especially in the last few weeks I've watched every video I can find on YouTube, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so you saw Renee's video. The one in the basement with the mist. Well, okay, I saw. Okay, that's. I want to talk about that. I saw a ton of videos in the basement with the mist, and I want to ask because I heard one individual in particular refer to it as dusty plasma, and I think oh, my eyes rolled back in my head so yeah, hard I that I almost passed out. So, um, but I want to talk to you, I, and that's what everybody always says, and I've seen the videos, but I want to know. I just credit orbs very quickly. Oh, I'm like, well, sure. It's, it's yeah, dust, dust getting no, caught in light. I don't even light. get me started on that. But, yeah, but this this dust looks a little bit different. I wanted to ask you, what, have you ever experienced it before in different places, or what do you think no, it is? No, you know, I hadn't. That that video, and it's Renee that shot That's the Renee's video, video. Which, okay. which gives it, in my opinion, more credibility. Right, not only of course. Because she's, I mean, not just because she's one of my best friends, and, and, you know, it's not that. It's that she is a professor an engin of engineering and all kinds of stuff. She's I mean, not I, I fall could, for no. She right. is a she is Doctor Renee Cruz. She's not some nut. Yes. Who I mean, and it's that she didn't get it from you know the back of a magazine. Was she really it, right. you know um, she really has a doctorate. She's a professor at a university, and she knows the difference between you know dust and you know and that kind of thing in a video. And when she took that video, and we're talking about like 1999, that video was actually featured in a. Uh, TV show that was on ABC that Halloween, mm -hmm. and they it was like a I don't remember the name of it, but it was a it was like kind of one of those you know oh these are paranormal videos, but we're gonna debunk all of them, uh, and okay. so it was one of those shows, and they debunked every video in the show except for Renee's. Really, they couldn't explain it. Now, now I'm not not making this up. I'm not trying to give more. I credibility almost admire them for putting the mansion, one on to say did. like hey yeah. we can't explain this one, and they did one. say that we don't we don't we can't give you an answer on this. Yeah. Um, and it was, it's a weird video, and you can find it online. I mean, it's out there. And, uh, but that was one that Renee Cruz took. And she, you know, she would have been the first person to, to just blow, you know, just laugh the whole thing off. Of course. If she had thought that it was something that was easily explained, but it wasn't. 
Um, it, it actually performed on command, if I remember correctly. It's been a while since I've watched really? it. Really? But yeah, it, it's it's very strange. It was a very weird video. Um, but yeah, that's a perfect example of, of what I'm talking about with this place is it's not easy to just blow everything off with it, you know? Um, and that's a, a perfect example of what I'm talking about uh, with that video. No, that's something that I like because I, you know, if I, I hate, I hate the people on both sides, right? The people that say like, well, you know, look, I, it's cold over here. Like this is a ghost, but I also am not a fan of the people on the other side who are like, well, no, no, we can explain that. I you know. know. I, I like the fact that there's some kind of in-between thing. And when you tell me there's a, a, a you know, a doctorate in engineering that, right. that, that feels right. this way, it makes me feel a little bit yeah. better well, I like to think things. of myself as an optimistic skeptic. I like that. And yeah. then, you know, I can kind of see, although yeah, I, I've seen you during recording sessions and there is no optimism <laughs> well, at not all with, everything. With, with the monologues. <laughs> not with everything. No, I like, I like that, though. Yeah, not um, with everything. I mean, you mentioned orbs earlier, and it was funny because I had, I wrote an article in like 2008 about orbs. 2008. Yes. I, it got I, picked up by some, uh, some people I know. It's been picked up all the time, and I moved it, I just recently moved it to the new new, new website, and um, and I actually put a note on the beginning of it that started with the word sigh. <laughs> that I didn't, I didn't understand why anyone was still reading this article. Hadn't we all given up on the idea that orbs were ghosts right. by now? Apparently Nine not. Nine years later after I had written the article. And even then, in 2008, I had given up on the idea because it was so ridiculous even by that point. And I thought no one surely is reading this in 2008. Well, now nine years later, people are still reading it. And I, I don't, and people still want to send me their picture. I have a picture of an orb. I wondered if you could look at it. I think it has the face of my grandfather in it. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't. It just doesn't. It's dust, you know. And, and so, yeah, there's a lot of things I'm not even optimistically skeptical about. That, that would be one of them. But... You know, when I hear stories and, and when things like that happen, you know, that my first instinct is to look for a natural explanation, some yeah. kind of rational explanation to it. I think that should be the default. But I'm happy to, yeah, I think it should be too, but I'm happy to accept when there isn't one. Of course. You know, um, and most of the time, you know, I, I, I tend to be like, you know, unless it happened to me, how do I know? I mean, there's no way I well, can know for sure. Well, then there's always going to be that. You know, yeah. that's always that's always my default position is well, you know, unless it happens to me, yeah. I'll be I believe that's what you believe. Right. But I, I just don't know. I'm not saying that you're lying. I just well, don't know. it's always know. a variable you can't control. You know? But you also can't always, and this is where But I on have... the other hand, if I'm telling you a story that I say, oh, God, it happened to me. It's absolutely it's true. You're in the same boat well, that course. I'm in because you're like, well, I know Troy believes this, but Unless how do I know? Unless we're standing next to each other when right. it happens. exactly. How do I know? And that's just a, a, an area I find myself faulting on sometimes where I want to fall to my only out is to say, well... I believe you, but it didn't happen to me. And and you can sure. do that to a certain point, but at some time you have to just be like, listen, this is a very trustworthy person. They right. were well, sober sure. state. Sure. And, 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 and at least it's believable. Yes. Yeah, it becomes believable. Right, right. I'm glad we got to talk about the orbs because I've mentioned, <laughs> I've written that down so many well, times. Well, there's a lot of orb pictures from the McPike Mansion because yes. um, it's dusty in there. That's, it's an old that's, house that's and it's thing. a basement with a dirt Maybe floor. we need to say this more explicitly. Yeah. So a lot of times 
when people go ghost hunting, they go into old abandoned buildings. Right. Old abandoned buildings tend to be dusty. When dust flies up, the way cameras work is they tend to capture a lot of light. Yeah. And dust, it reflects it. Reflects it, it, it's, the light of your camera flash. And so I'm not saying I, there's nothing there. I don't even there. know why. Why are we still explaining this? I don't know. And, and honestly, I didn't know about this until pro I didn't know the arguments against it until maybe a year, year and a half ago. Yeah. And I think it needs to be explicitly stated that <laughs> I'm not saying that like this orb isn't following you around but it's probably just moving with the wind because it's, it's dust, dust following it's your following your trail yes your wake you know gosh i know it, it sometimes we'll be out of town for an event or something or we'll be on you know, one of our trips and we'll be on a ghost tour or something and somebody will start talking about the, the tour guide will start talking about oh yeah our guests get a lot of orbs here uh, yeah because it's a grassy field yeah but you don't want to you just let it go you just let it go you know i just I, you know, I, I, I stopped arguing about it, mm -hmm. well, I think 2008, when I put that article up where yeah. I said, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Please don't send me your orb pictures. Right. You know, um, Again, I'm fine with the entertainment aspect of it. If you want people to have a good time, but if they actually uh, want to I, dive I don't know. I it. just tend to just not talk about it. So it's well, I'm, I appreciate you coming out of your Oh, no, no, no. That's okay. It's not, it's not that. Because uh, I think it's worthy of mention because... Yeah. There are so many people who equate that with a place being haunted, and yeah. I think the McPike Mansion is a place that can stand on its own. It doesn't need orb pictures yeah. to be haunted. You know, um, in fact, that argues against it for me. You know, um, instead, I would rather hear about the experiences that people have, especially ones that actually match some sort of event or something from the history of right. the house. That's much more believable to me. Yeah. And, um, you know, with a lot of investigations, and I'm going to put that in quotation marks, you know, that people come away with all these orb pictures. That doesn't doesn't tell me anything. So you're saying me no. and my friend stumbling from downtown into the <laughs> yeah. does not yeah, constitute probably an investigation? probably not an investigation. Well, I, I believe, I, I think it was um, Sharon Ludke, is that correct? Yes. That, and she mentioned how if she hears a story three times from independent yeah, sources that don't know each other. Yeah, which is a good way to do it. And I, yeah, are you, I think you, she's learned that over time. You've kind of in a roundabout way mentioned that too, and I think that that's very fair. And so one of my favorite stories is George Ludke, and he's talking about working in the yard, and he often feels that somebody is like watching him. Uh, but he said he doesn't feel like it's like a negative presence. He feels like it's more of a supervisor type person work, like watching over him while he's working. And I thought that was really appropriate because there are the vineyards there yeah. and everything. And I didn't know about that. And how many people have they probably hired? Oh, you yeah. You know, back when the place was running, it's 15 acres. You had a lot of staff. And I'm upset that I didn't get any of that wine. But the, the <laughs> funny thing to me is that I have shared a ridiculous amount of wine with some McPikes oh, in my yeah, day yeah. but I had no idea that <laughs> right. you know this is where you know it could have potentially came from I really wish that that wine was still around because it would have been so appropriate to have a bottle of I it know, for the it show would. and I heard I had heard that somebody was at some point over the years you know how you hear one thing or another yeah. that somebody was try, was bringing back that grape or maybe it's still around somewhere but not around here or let something us know like if you know if it's yeah, around yeah if you know of know. any around yeah we would be interested so and in, in hearing about that and drinking the wine. So. I will pay upwards of thirty dollars <laughs> yeah, a bottle. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I also um, I was watching some video and it talked about I believe it was Henry's youngest daughter, Moreland, perhaps. Um, and and they were talking about how some things that don't necessarily seem significant in the beginning um, tend to later because they talked about people hearing whistling in the McPike Mansion and then uh, that this daughter was a uh, she was a contestant in a whistling contest back in the now, day see I, had never see, I can't great. confirm this but it was in one of the YouTube that's, videos that's actually awesome and <laughs> once I heard that I tell you I was I was coming into Illinois and I was probably whistling from 
um, the last gas station in Missouri up until I got to the hotel. And it was just, uh, it was really, it was fun. You know, it's it's, it's nice and there's fun little things yeah, about those is, hauntings, that's, you know. It's it, very cool. Although it probably wouldn't have been if you'd have been that kid's parent. No, no. So I don't think I would have wanted to listen oh, to that kind of whistling. So, yeah. Alive or dead, yeah. I'd be like, just yeah. stop. stop. Just, just stop, stop whistling. It. Okay. Okay, so my last question, it's a little random, little out there, but I wrote it down just kind of offhand right at the end as you were going through um, the monologue. So I have to ask, how many people actually <laughs> constitute a score? You, I, I do that all the time, don't I? Yes, um, yes. It is use words word, I do not understand. You know, like the Gettysburg Address when Abraham, like it says four score. And, oh, yeah, you know, okay, all right. It's actually an old word for 20. Oh, so, okay. so 20 people. 20 people is a score, but I just like the way it sounds. Okay, well, so, I'm going like to need names. scores of people. I'm going to so, need names, and if, yeah, it, if I, we're not hitting the 20 <laughs> digits. Well this, is, well, this would be scores, so this would be multiples of multiples 20. Multiples so, of 20, okay. I mean, it's a lot of people. Let's just leave it at that. It's a lot of people. <laughs> All right, good to know. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Um, this is, uh, we are nearing the end of our Alton episodes. We are only yes. one episode away from completing the very first season of the podcast. So uh, we appreciate everyone who has hung in this long. And we want to thank you again, as I said at the beginning, uh, thanks for listening. Um, share the podcast with your friends. I mean, we post about it. We get, you know, new people see it all the time every time we post and do a new episode. But pass it on to your friends um, and, and pass it around. Leave us a review. Again, I don't know where you want to listen to it, if you listen to it on SoundCloud or if you listen on our website, wherever you listen to it. Um, if you just go on iTunes, if you've got an iPhone, just go on iTunes, even yep. if you don't listen to it there. Leave us a review. Uh, makes it easier for everyone to find it. Right. So, again, thank you very much for listening. And... Uh, turn it over to Cody. Yeah, and we've had, you know, we've had one person actually reach out and sent us one of their own, uh, their ghost stories from Alton, and if you have any other stories you'd like to tell us, we'd love to hear them. Um, we're going to St. Louis for season two, like we talked about. If there are places there that you think we should we should talk about, let us know. Um, if there are places that you want to listen to the podcast that you can't, you know, please shoot me an email, let me know. Um, you know, constructive criticism is always great. Sending me an email saying you suck is not constructive it's not criticism. Really constructive. Uh, it's not constructive. It's just not straight to my criticism. Somewhat annoying sidekick. Right. Right. Yeah. I already. I'm already aware of that. And yeah. Yes. I don't know what I'm talking about. But that's kind of the point. That is the point. But thank you for listening. Um, we really appreciate all the reviews. I appreciate every email sign up that we get. And uh, we will be back in two weeks for the finale and the conclusion of American Hauntings Podcast Season One, Alton, Illinois. The purpose of this podcast is to combine historic record folklore, scientific method, observation, and imagination in order to teach you a little bit more about America's most haunted places, including the town of Alton, Illinois. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and receive a brand new paranormal history lesson. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to some of Troy's books as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or at CodyBeck.com. Find Troy on Twitter at TroyTaylor13 and on Facebook by searching for the Troy Taylor Author page or by going to Facebook.com slash AuthorTT. You can also check him out at AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Some of the music in this episode was written and recorded by Charlie Brock at Lighthouse Sounds in Alton, Illinois. Find them at LighthouseSounds.com.